So this uh, final talk uh, in the series is going to look at the idea of uh, stream entry. But before we, we go on to that, I'd like to return to the distinction I made at the very beginning, namely that what these suttas, these discourses that we've been looking at are about is, I feel, more um, a set of instructions rather than an attempt to describe what is the nature of reality. In other words, they're giving us something to do rather than giving us or challenging us with something to believe. And I think this is a very useful description. Ah, shouldn't have said that. <laughs> I find it very helpful to think of them in this way. <laughs> now, one of uh, the reasons for that is because if we think of uh, these texts as instructions or suggestions or advice, then we adopt them and practice them without any preconceived idea of what it is that they might lead to, of what the end result is going to be. Whereas if we think of them as descriptive, then we will start asking questions like, well, what is the nature of nirvana? What is the nature of enlightenment? And seek to find some kind of working definition and having defined it in a particular way, often on the basis of what we find in these texts, we will then set out to practice the Dhamma as a means to somehow accord our experience with a preconceived idea. In other words, we have this idea of what Nibbana is, and then I set out to realize that goal. I think that gives two quite different models of um, what a practice could be. A prescriptive model or an instruction-based or a practice-based model is one that um, is in a sense open-ended. Uh, we don't actually know where these practices are necessarily going to lead. All we know is that they open us up in a certain way. They lead to uh, at least the beginnings of a stillness, of an awareness, of a responsiveness, of a set of values that enables us to encounter the world uh, in a new way. How that interaction unfolds in the specific context of our own life, we cannot say. Now, this is to me reminiscent of some of the ways in which we talk about art. And I have in mind particularly um, some of the ideas of John Keats. Now, Keats has this famous uh, idea um, of negative, <coughs> negative capability. And I'm sure most of you have heard of this. But it's worth going back to his letter uh, he only uses the word once in a letter and, de and, and defines it. 
he says neg negative capability is when a man, obviously we'd say now a person, is able to stay with uncertainty and doubts without any irritable reaching after fact or reason. When a person is able to stay with uncertainty and doubts without any irritable reaching after fact or reason. Now this is very reminiscent, it's almost a perfect definition of the practice of what is this? Of, of Zen meditation, a, a meditative practice that is primarily putting one into a state of perplexity and puzzlement and astonishment, which I think is implicit in the practice of mindful awareness. In other words, an awareness that's not, um, in a sense, committed to a certain preconceived idea or belief or fixed view about anything, but is open to the immediacy and the sublimity of experience without any irritable in Keats day irritable didn't mean as it means for us you know being slightly pissed off irritable actually meant reflexive a limb was irritable if you tapped it on its knee and it jumped so it means something like automatic or reactive or um, reflexive which is what happens in meditation. It's very difficult to stay with what is happening. There is this very deep tendency to react or to reflexively jump at a, go for a word or a, a, a phrase or a memory of something to somehow tie it down. It's a bit like we saw with Mara yesterday. Our reflexive attitude is to define things and pin things down and have some certainty about them. Whereas it seems that what we're trying to do in this practice is to be able to, as Keats says, stay with uncertainty rather than constantly be reaching after some certainty. Now that's quite challenging. It's not easy to do. And this, I feel, also um, moves very easily into Keats' um, understanding of what he calls the poetical character. And this is a passage that uh, comes in a letter um, of October 1818. And he says, As to the poetical character itself, it is not itself. It has no self. It is everything and nothing. It has no character. It enjoys light and shade. It lives in gusto, be it foul or fair, <coughs> high or low, rich or poor, <coughs> mean or elevated. It has as much delight in conceiving an Iago as an Imogen. He's talking of Shakespeare. What shocks the virtuous philosopher delights the chameleon poet. Now again, I find that this, I mean, what's remarkable about this passage is that Keats knew zero about Buddhism. So this idea of no self, 
he's not picking up from some uh, some Buddhist source. That idea was quite literally not known in Europe at that time. He's arrived at this idea, I think, through his own immediate quest for insight and understanding, truth perhaps. And what is interesting is that for him this is the key to the poetic character. The, um, the creative mind basically, that he sees most eminently illustrated in the figure of Shakespeare. I find this useful because it, it brings in an element that I think in many ways we often find missing in the uh, classical early texts of Buddhism. Namely, um, where does the imagination fit in? There's not even a word for imagination. Where does creativity come in? There's not even a concept in Pali of creativity. These are relatively recent ideas. And yet in our culture, I think for many of us, they're very central ideas to what it means to live a full life. It means to be creative, imaginative, to not just go along with received opinion, but somehow to forge a... Um, um, a life for ourselves that's emerging out of new possibilities or opening up new possibilities. And for the artist, for the poet, uh, this is very much the, uh, the wellspring of his or her work. And I feel that when the Buddha describes the Eightfold Path as something that needs to be brought into being, what that means really is to be created. In other words, to be uh, cultivated, to be, be, be brought into being, into existence, where previously it didn't exist. And that's what it means to create something. Something that previously wasn't there is now there. So I feel we can use these ideas as a means of uh, expanding the notion of bhavana, that the creation of the path uh, is very much a creative process. It's something that arises out of our ability to, to be with our experience without any irritable reaching after fact or reason. And yet not to just be a passive observer either. To allow the possibility of seeing and thinking and speaking and acting in a way that's not conditioned by habit or tradition or convention but rather stems from something that is unconditioned by those narrowing or restrictive uh, impulses or attachments within our life. Now one of the key themes that was announced as the title of this retreat, namely Self, Nama Rupa and Consciousness, brings us then to the Buddha's understanding of Self which we've touched on, but largely in terms of not-self. A famous passage that I think is, uh, is very important here is a dialogue with, uh, between the Buddha and a man called Vachagota. Vachagota wasn't a Buddhist, but he was someone who often showed up and asked the Buddha difficult questions, as on this occasion. He says, how is it, Mr. Gautama? Is there a self? 
and the Buddha remained silent. So Vajragota said, well then how is it Mr. Gautama, is there not a self? And the Buddha remained silent. So Vajragota got up from his seat and went away. Then the Buddha turned to Ananda and said, if I had answered, there is a self, that would have been siding with the eternalists. And if I had answered, there is not a self, that would have been siding with the nihilists. This, I feel, is one of the clearest passages where the whole Buddhist doctrine of no-self is blown out of the water. Because clearly to deny the existence of self is basically to slip into what the Buddha calls nihilism. But at the same time, if we affirm the existence of self, particularly as something real, then that falls into the opposite trap, that of eternalism. Eternalism is the idea that there's something within experience that doesn't change, whether that we call that self or whether we call it pristine awareness or unconditioned consciousness, something that is a, in a sense transcends experience, the rising, the passing of what's going on here, and probably survives death, something that's eternal. And Buddhism, I think, has slipped back into that way of thinking. The idea, for example, that you know, once we get rid of our attachments and hatreds and so on, that will expose some, uh, some fundamental goodness or wisdom or compassion that's, in a way, a kind of eternal, pure awareness that is concealed. That's far more, I think, um, the view of Vedanta, but it's certainly not the view of the Buddha. For him, that is just another extreme. That what is really challenging is to embrace the fact that whatever is happening is contingent and impermanent. Now that can be kind of scary in that there doesn't appear to be any kind of foundational ground anymore on which everything is sort of based. But it's very liberating because it opens up experience as um, a realm of pure possibility. It means that we can change things, we can change ourselves, we can ultimately perhaps participate in the change of our society, of our culture, of our world. But it doesn't, there is no sort of absolute or fundamental or ultimate ground that sort of supports us in that. And the Buddha saw that as kind of uh, deadening, a kind of uh, 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 very easily leading to a sort of spiritual complacency, just resting in pure being. On the other hand, we find passages where the Buddha does use the term self in a totally non-problematic way. He clearly has no time for the notion of any eternal underlying pure consciousness or self, but he recognizes that the word self denotes um, a, you know, a person, 
<clears throat> in the same way that the word bell denotes bells and the word clock denotes clocks. There's nothing wrong with that. But we need to rethink what it is we mean when we talk about myself or yourself. The passage that I find most helpful here is from the Dhammapada, which is again this very well-known set of verses in the, in, in the Pali Canon. And it's verse number 80, where the Buddha says, Just as a farmer irrigates his field, just as a fletcher fashions an arrow, just as a carpenter shapes a piece of wood, so the sage, or the wise person, tames the self. That's what the text literally says. Atanam dhammati pandita, the wise person tames the self. The word self is being used in the accusative case. In other words, it's the direct object of the verb, in the same way that field and arrow and wood are the objects with which these the farmer and the arrowsmith and the carpenter work with. In other words, ourselves, who we are, is seen here clearly as something to be worked, something to be transformed and changed, not something that is already somehow what it, has it, what it is eternally. So in other words, self is a project, a project to be realized rather than a state that exists. And uh, once again, I mean, this suggests very much a, a praxis-based approach, namely, um, self is not something to believe in or disbelieve in, it's something to do. It's something to actually get involved with. And so, uh, who you are um, is something like a field, a barren field, perhaps, that needs to be irrigated. And again, this supports very much the idea that uh, this practice is about flourishing. If you irrigate a field, the field then becomes capable of giving birth to a crop, a harvest. Something then comes into life, comes into being, and nourishes pe pe people. In the same way, with you, if you take the different elements, piece of wood, feathers, a barb or a pointed piece of metal and you assemble that together you get something that's more than the sum of its parts and something that in this image at least can be directed towards a target which suggests again that our self or who we are is in a, is very often not really very focused you know we're very we, we do a bit of this and we do a bit of that and we go over here but the whole of our existence is not really integrated. All our different skills and faculties are not necessarily integrated into a single focus. And that, I feel, again, is what the Eightfold Path is really about. It's about bringing together all the elements of our life in order that our life achieves an integrity and a focus in which all of our, our energies are channeled in a similar direction. 
again, once again, there's a danger, I think, in, in, in Buddhism um, that privileges, say, meditation over everything else. And often meditation is thought of as the practice and your ethical life, your working life, your relationships, your philosophy, all of that is somehow secondary because it's this meditation and concentration that will lead you to enlightenment. And again, I feel that that is perhaps a symptom of how the tradition over the centuries became dominated by experts in meditation. Now, I think meditation is obviously very important. I think particularly in our culture where it's a skill that we don't, in a sense, learn in when, when, when we go to school or university. So clearly we need to put a fair bit of time into learning these skills, but not at the risk of somehow marginalizing the rest of our lives. So I feel there is a need, and I would argue that this would be one of the projects of a secular approach, would be to r restore the integrity into the notion of practice, where the way we think, the way we speak, the way we act, the way we work, all of that is practice. In other words, the cultivation of the virtues, the cultivation of meditation, the cultivation of in, insight, wisdom and understanding. All of that is equally practice. And a person who's not good at meditation, therefore, need not feel excluded that a community, a sangha, would be one that, um, uh, in a sense, embodies and celebrates a diversity of different uh, skills. It's not, you know, it's not all about who's the best meditator, who's done the most retreats, etc. And this, I feel, leads us very, to me, very naturally into the area of, uh, of ethics. In other words, our practice is one that's not just about self-development or self-improvement, which again is often suggested when meditation becomes privileged. But in fact, it's about um, empathetically acknowledging the existence of others. We already touched on that, but let's now translate the idea of empathy into the basis for moral and ethical action. And the passage I find the most helpful here is... Um, sorry, my computer's mucking me around. Um, is from the Sutta Nipata. Again, the Sutta Nipata is this very early collection of verses um, that scholars believe to be the, you know, maybe the, the earliest stratum we have that might go back to the Buddha's teaching in the first years of his um, uh, teaching career. This is what the text says. As I am, so are they. As they are, so am I. Comparing himself with others... He should not kill or cause to kill. As I am, so are you, let's say. As you are, so am I. 
comparing oneself with the other, others, one should not kill or cause to kill. Uh, this for me is the foundation of Buddhist ethics. Now, in other words, it's not um, uh, only about following certain precepts, following Buddhist morality, if you wish, um, although that is clearly an important element too. But we have to ask the question, why should I not kill? Why should I not steal? Why should I not abuse somebody sexually? Why should I not lie? And so on. And I think the answer to that question is found in verses such as this. Um, because others are just like you. In other words, the more that you open up um, your awareness of dukkha to the dukkha of the other, the more you dissolve the sense of an experience that's dominated by I, me, mine, the more that experience is simply an, uh, a, a constantly arising and vanishing field of interconnected events, then your dukkha becomes essentially no more or less important than his or her dukkha, or the dukkha of the other forms of life on this planet. So I feel that this practice of fully knowing dukkha is the means whereby we tap into our capacity to empathize, but to empathize beyond the limits of what I think of as mine. It's very easy to empathize with the suffering of one's children, or of one's partner, or of one's friends, or of one's fellow Australians, or whatever it might be. In other words, anything within the domain of mine, we can feel deep empathy. You know, we have these stories of the concentration camp officers during the war who would be very good fathers and husbands, and then they'd go to work and gas Jewish people. In other words, you can cut off uh, by, the, as soon as you move outside mine, others don't matter. And I think it's very striking, both in early Buddhism and, uh, again, much emphasized in Mahayana Buddhism, is the idea that this practice is about all sentient beings. Anything that has life, consciousness. So what one seeks, in a way, is to expand one's empathetic sense um, so that everyone is we, as it were. Now again, this is very idealistic, perhaps, in some ways. Um, but I feel that this really is, especially in an increasingly globalized world, particularly important. And I feel it's an important part of one's practice to notice where you draw that line. You know, do you draw that line against Muslims or um, members of the American Republican Party? Ah, <laughs> uh, you see? <laughs> and we all do it. I mean, I don't think we need to pretend otherwise that we can, you know, we can generate all of this loving kindness for all beings, but in practice, we're still drawing all these lines. And the, the, the ethic that is really being um, presented here is an ethic where uh, there are no lines. 
Very, very difficult, very challenging. Now another passage that I've found, uh, maybe I should just point out, of course, um, just as I am, so are you, just as they are, so am I. Comparing oneself with others, one should not kill or cause to kill. Um, is, is, is quite close to the Christian idea of do unto others as you would have them do to yourself. And again, it's not a Christian idea. It goes back, I think, to Leviticus, um, this notion. In other words, there's something, it seems, in probably all um, uh, spiritual traditions that is, you know, arrives at this understanding, uh, this, this sense that when we're really honest with ourselves, when, when, when we reflect about life, we begin to recognize the fact that we're all in this together and that any kind of lines we draw are artificial or purely self-interested. Okay, this passage comes from the Vinaya, the text on the monastic rule, and I've also found it a, a foundational text for Buddhist ethics. Now at that time, the text says, a certain monk was suffering from dysentery. He lay fallen in his own excrements. Then the Buddha, as he was touring the lodgings with his attendant Ananda, approached that monk's dwelling and spoke to that monk. What's your disease, monk? Sir, I have dysentery. But have you no one to tend you? No, sir. Why do the monks not tend to you? I, sir, am of no use to the monks, therefore the monks don't tend to me. Then the Buddha addressed Ananda, Go, Ananda, bring water and we will bathe this monk. The Buddha sprinkled on the water and the venerable Ananda washed him over. The teacher, the Buddha, took him by his head, the venerable Ananda by his feet, and having raised him up, they laid him on a couch. Then the Buddha had the monks convened and asked, Why are you not attending to your sick brother, monks? Lord, this monk is of no use to the community, therefore the monks do not tend to him. <laughs> we'll come back to this. It's, it's a little harsh, I agree. <laughs> and then the Buddha replies, Monks, you have not a father... You have not a mother who might tend to you. If you do not tend to each other, then who is there who will tend to you? Whoever monks would tend to me, he should tend to the sick. Now, um, again, I find the passage about, you know, we don't care for him because he's no use to us. Uh, I find that a little difficult to take literally. But psychologically, I think it's very true. And um, you know, I suspect most of us have lost interest in a sick relative or friend or member of our community or whatever. After a while, we get kind of tired of having to deal with this difficult situation. I mean, to what extent do we, we either forget or we kind of lose touch with people who are ill. I know that that's true for myself, and I also notice how I somehow even feel a mild resentment at having to spend time, uh, you know, visiting someone or 
in my case, my mother, who's very, very old. Um, so I think we have to be perfectly honest about this. It's very easy to, uh, in a sense, affirm a sort of moral high ground and to think of ourselves as caring and compassionate people, and I hope we are. But we need, I think, to notice also the resistance in practice that often comes up when we're actually obliged to, um, uh, you know, to actually deal with some instance of sickness or aging or uh, difficulty or someone who's imprisoned. So again, it's the same as this idea of uh, expanding our concern beyond the area of mind. I think we do tend to, um, in a way, um, disregard, for example, the aged. When I visit my mother in a home in the Midlands in England, she's 98, and um, she's pretty much so out of it now that we can't really even have a conversation. But uh, I'm aware from talking to the staff um, that a lot of these people are just left there. Nobody visits them, nobody rings them up, and yet the people who you know, don't do those things are probably thinking, I'm so glad my mother is in this wonderful home. <laughs> in other words, we can console ourselves, we can feel somehow we've, we've undertaken our responsibilities uh, because we're taking such good care of mum and dad. But often mum and dad are forgotten about. And people in more so-called third world countries find this behaviour incredibly shocking that you would put your parents into the care of strangers. I remember reading an interview with an African woman um, who just couldn't believe that this went on in the so-called developed world. So it raises all kinds of questions and what I feel is particularly striking about this passage is the last um, sentence. Whoever monks would tend to me, the Buddha's talking about himself, should tend to the sick. Now, I don't think he means me in the sense of my, me, a person called Siddhartha Gautama from Sakya, an historical figure. But I suspect he means me in the sense of the one who is awake, the Buddha. In other words, if you care about awakening, you should care for the sick. Now, this, of course, goes back to the very beginnings of the Buddha's life. He's encountering a sick person, a corpse, an aging person, and that's what prompted his quest for awakening. And I can only actually understand that awakening as a response to those initial questions. In other words, it's through... Um, awakening to the reality of sickness, aging and death, that we are moved to seek some authentic and um, ethical response to that human condition. Now, sickness, aging and death are often presented so glibly as kind of just ideas that we don't necessarily connect them to the fact that we're actually talking about particular people who are sick particular people who are old and particular people who are dying. There's always a danger when we get into philosophy or metaphysics that everything becomes abstract 
and we forget that we're actually referring to a particular person suffering from a particular disease in a particular place at a particular time. That's in a sense what the Buddha's pointing to in this beautiful story. It's a specific monk lying in his own ship. That's where, in a way, our practice begins. And here I think too, we have a, a, a very uh, concretized um, uh, sense of um, compassion and care uh, for this particular person or this particular creature, whatever it is. Now once again, there are resonances of this within the Christian tradition. And perhaps some of you have already connected this to Matthew 25, where Jesus says, For I was hungry and you gave me meat, I was thirsty and you gave me drink, I was a stranger and you took me in, naked and you clothed me, I was sick and you visited me, I was in prison and you came to me. In other words, Jesus identifies with the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, and the imprisoned. And I've, I al I've always found that particular gospel passage uh, incredibly powerful. And I was, in a way, rather uh, uneasy in that I couldn't find comparable passage in Buddhism. Um, I studied for a long time Mahayana Buddhism. I mentioned the Bodhicari Avatar of Shantideva yesterday. But throughout that whole text, everything is abstract. It's all sentient beings. But it's not a particular person. And so it was only when, relatively recently, I found this passage in the Vinaya about the sick monk that I found that degree of concreteness that is there in the Gospels. Except, of course, it's possibly 400 years earlier than the Gospels. But I think it's an element of the Buddhist teaching that's somehow been forgotten. It's not a very well, much-cited passage. I don't know how many of you have heard it. But it only occurs once or may, maybe twice. And again, in the rules for the monks. So it's not in the suttas. In some ways I feel... Oh, I'm running out of time. Um, in some ways I feel um, uh, the, 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 the Pali Canon, it, it contains a number of fragments and a lot of filler. Um, and the, the challenge, I think, is to sort of identify the fragments that link together um, and somehow give rise to uh, a sense of the Dhamma uh, that is, is some, sometimes obscured. I'm not suggesting that this is what the Buddha really meant, but I'm suggesting that this is a perfectly legitimate reading that responds to the conditions of our time. And each time Buddhism has moved into a new era or historical period or culture, it's rethought itself, it's reimagined itself from the ground up. And so in some ways I feel that that's what we're called upon to do in a way to somehow get back to the sources and rethink what this all means. So now we come on to stream entry. I've only got about 20 minutes. But all of this, I think, is very, very connected. <clears throat> so first of all, what does the Buddha mean when he uses the word stream? 
again, it's quite clear. Um, he asks Sariputta, he says, Sariputta, we say the stream, the stream. Now what Sariputta is the stream? And Sariputta answers, this noble eightfold path, venerable sir, this is the stream. Sariputta, we say a stream enterer, a stream enterer. Now what Sariputta is a stream enterer? And Sariputta says, one who possesses this noble eightfold path, venerable sir, is called a stream enterer. Okay? So if we go back to the, 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 the way in which we looked at the four, embracing dukkha, which leads to a falling away of grasping and craving, which leads to moments in which the grasping and the craving stop, or if they don't stop, we realize we are free not to act according to their imperatives. That opens up the possibility of cultivating and creating a path, the Eightfold Path. And so it's quite um, orthodox to recognize that stream entry is, starts with the stopping of greed, hatred and delusion that opens us up to what's called right view, right thought, right action and so on. And so the stream is the Eightfold Path. So, and, and a stream enter is someone for whom that path has become their own. That's the important point. Uh, who possesses. In other words, this path is no longer something you just believe in or aspire to. It's something that has become your own. The practice now is, not, it is in a sense, you, your own process. Your own life has become this a path which then leads you to the way you think and speak and act and work, the way you attend to things, the way you concentrate, and how that brings you into a, a new relation to life itself, experience, this embracing of dukkha and the falling away of craving. And so the process keeps spiraling on. Now in... Um, uh, a lot of um, uh, orthodox Buddhism stream entries become elevated to a fairly high level of attainment. Um, I remember once at a conference in Spirit Rock of Vipassana teachers, uh, someone rather naughtily circulated a questionnaire. We could fill it in anonymously, but one of the questions is, are you a stream entry? <laughs> <laughs> And I don't think anybody said yes, or maybe one or two people. There's an incredible nervousness about making some sort of spiritual claim for yourself. But this, again, I think is, is, is very um, revealing, because it shows the extent to which over time stream entry has become increasingly rarefied and uh, almost unattainable to the point where perhaps only the most enlightened monks and those who spent years and years and years on retreat could possibly even hope to have a glimpse of this thing. But again, when we go back to these early sources, we find some rather surprising texts. Like this one, for example. This is in the 
the Sotapati Sangyutta, the Connected Discourses on Stream Entry, which is the single most, um, uh, the, 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 the most sustained account in the whole canon about stream entry, right at the end of the Sangyutta Nikaya. And here the Buddha is speaking to a laywoman called uh, Kali Goda, or Goda, we'll call her. And Kali Goda, she's a Sakyan woman, she comes to the Buddha and she says, you know, you know what does it mean to be a stream enterer? And this is the Buddha's reply. He says, Goda, a noble woman disciple who possesses four things is a stream enterer. What for? Here, Goda, a noble woman disciple possesses lucid confidence in the Buddha. She possesses lucid confidence in the, in the Dhamma. She possesses lucid confidence in the Sangha. And she dwells with a mind devoid of stinginess, freely generous, open-handed, delighted in relinquishment, devoted to giving and sharing. That's a stream entrant. So, again, a number of points come clear here. First of all, it has nothing to do with being a monk or a nun. Here we have a lay woman. Um, it has to do primarily with um, having reoriented your life around a, another set of values. In other words, the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha, which is usually thought of as taking refuge and it's often presented as you know, the ritual whereby you join the Buddhist club. But actually, I think that both trivializes the notion of refuge and um, also undermines uh, what, we might, what the Buddha means by stream entry. Stream entry means to lead a life along the Eightfold Path, as we've seen, in which you take every situation in life as best you can as an opportunity to be awake, as an opportunity to practice the path, and as an opportunity to affirm your confidence in the community, in other words, those other men and women who are committed to a similar goal. The Sangha, I think, is, is important here because it suggests that your practice is not just some solitary endeavor you do on your cushion, but is embedded in a set of relationships, of friendships, basically. And then in the case of Goda, um, he then says it's about being generous. It's about having an open heart and mind that freely gives. Now, in, 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 in other texts, uh, in this same section of the canon, um, he actually says, um, uh, in addition to having lucid confidence in the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha, one also possesses the virtues that are dear to the noble ones. That's the more standard text. With Goda, it just becomes generosity, which I think is, again, a very uh, profound virtue, a very important one, one that's not much emphasized in the Pali text. But basically it means to live a life in which you cultivate the virtues. Uh, and I'm translating, by the way, virtue from the word sila. Sila is often translated as morality. But actually the way it's used uh, is much closer to the word virtue. 
Uh, and in fact, it's very difficult to say who possesses the morality dear to the noble ones. And when the Buddha specifies an example, it's generosity. Generosity is not a morality, but it is a sila. It's a virtue. And in this sense, Buddhist ethics um, is a bit like Aristotelian virtue ethics. It's about a commitment to uh, cultivating what uh, virtues that you consider to embody what is good. And so this is you know, generosity, kindness, compassion, tolerance, wisdom, concentration, mindfulness, and so on, that we hear of throughout the Buddhist tradition. These are all sealers. These are virtues. Now there are other ways... Um, Again, we can see now how, how stream entry is becoming rather complex. It, it's about entering the path, the Eightfold Path. It's about committing oneself to the realization of core values, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. It's about the cultivation of virtue, or in one specific instance, the cultivation of generosity. But here's another definition. When bhikkhus a noble disciple has abandoned perplexity regarding the five bundles and when further he has abandoned perplexity about the four he is then called a noble disciple who is a stream enterer. So again, this ties into what we've been talking about with the, the bundles, with Nama Rupa Vijnana, with experience, life, and particularly, how all of that is framed within the practice of the four tasks. If one has, as he says, abandoned perplexity about all of this, in other words, you, you have a clear understanding of this process, of this frame, of this vision, then you're a stream enterer. It doesn't say anything about reaching any degree of attainment, but it has to do with uh, a life that is... Um, more and more engaged with living within this perspective, that stream entry. Now, the definition that most of you are probably familiar with um, of, about stream entry is the following one, which again has a very early source, but it's by far only one of many ways of looking at this topic. And this is about the abandoning of the three fetters. Okay? So, this is, how, well, this is what the text literally says. At the same time as his attainment, in other words, uh, this is the attainment of experiencing the stopping of greed, hatred and delusion, three things are abandoned. Sakaya ditti, which I'll translate as narcissism, doubt, and whatever virtues and vows there may be. That's what the text literally says. Okay. Now, Sakaya Ditti is often translated as the, in, the view of individuality. And that often then is interpreted as the experience that there is no self. But again, I think we've seen that that's really not a tenable understanding. The word Sakaya Ditti literally means, Sakaya means the whole body, Sakaya, 
and ditti means view, view of the whole body. In other words, looking at our whole body. And as we saw in the definition of clinging, this is like a young man or woman looking at themselves in a mirror and becoming delighted in that appearance, which is close to the myth of Narcissus. So I would argue that Sakaya Ditti is narcissistic self-regard. And so when we have those moments in our life when we um, lose, in a sense, when, that falls, when the sense of me, mine, falls away, even momentarily, we experience life as just a complex unfolding of events, of experience, of what's passing, and that none of this is essentially me or mine, at that point, the world stops reflecting back our own image. And that is, I feel, what is meant by the loss of Sakaya Ditti, of, of, of a narcissistic self-regard. The second thing that falls away is doubt. And again, I think this matches very closely the idea that stream entry is confirmed confidence in Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. In other words, we're now, as it were, committed to something rather than entertaining the idea that we might do this. And also, of course, it refers to the idea that the Eightfold Path has become one's own. It's no longer something separate from one's life. It's actually become one's life. And at that point, it's, doubt is really you know, no longer such an operative force. Because we kind of know this for ourselves now. And as some of you might have found, it's very difficult to sort of forget about it. It's kind of got you. You're kind of engaged with this process, even when you try to not do it. It won't let go. And the third one, and this is really quite interesting, is what, you know, the third thing that falls away on stream entry is sila bhatta. Again, sila, the same word, virtue. And bhatta means observances, vows, something like that. The term is not used, um, it's sometimes used quite positively. But it's given enormous difficulty to Buddhist interpreters. And most of the translations of this passage uh, say attachment to rites and rituals is what falls away. Rites and rituals. And that's often thought to be um, the sort of rites and rituals that the Brahman Brahmanic priests might have performed. But I think this is really not facing up to what the text says. The text says that silabata, virtues and vows, are abandoned. What does that mean? We've already seen that, in fact, to be a stream entrant is one who possesses the virtues that are dear to the, the noble ones. So clearly there's an affirmation of sila. So it seems as though a particular relationship to sila falls away. And I would suggest, and again this is probably an extreme minority view, is that what falls away is, as it were, rule-bound morality. And this moves us from 
um, thinking of ethics as um, following certain precepts, not killing, not stealing, and so on, to thinking of ethics as our way of responding authentically to the suffering of others. And again, I'm influenced in this by, uh, think, by Christian ethics, at least certain elements, um, in which they talk about situational ethics. An ethics, therefore, that is, 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 is uh, driven not by adherence to certain rules, but by, um, by the way we respond to particular instances of suffering. Again, if we go back to the example of the sick monk, um, the question is not, you know, what is the right thing to do in this situation? The question is, what is the most wise and loving thing to do in this situation? Now, just give a concrete example. According to Buddhist morality, Killing of any kind is wrong. It's going to generate enormous bad karma and get you born in somewhere terribly nasty. According to this approach, um, it's about um, it's not about following rules, but it's something far more challenging, and that is to uh, respond to suffering, specific suffering, in an authentic way. So let's take an example of, say, um, a, a woman who has been raped, who is pregnant, who's got six children, who's impoverished, and who might die th as a result of having to go through this birth. How do we deal with that? If we follow the Buddhist precepts, you uh, do not kill, the answer's easy. We don't abort the child. If we respond from a perspective of uh, situation ethics, we ask ourselves, what in this specific instance is the most loving and wise thing to do? And there, we're, again, we're back to the teaching as an instruction rather than a kind of a dogma. And it's far more difficult. Obviously, it's, it's, very, it's very convenient to have a bunch of precepts and we can say, well, that's easy. We don't abort the child. But is that the most compassionate thing to do in this case? So my sense is that when the path becomes your own, when you are um, uh, committed to um, this way of life, then what falls away is uh, a dogmatic views of morality. That's not to say that we don't accord value to the precepts, but we see them more as guidelines rather than hard and fast rules. Another element, and we're going to have to stop in a minute, Another element about stream entry that I think is, is, is again kind of important is that stream entry is understood as becoming independent of others in the teaching, which again supports the idea of, of a situational ethic as, a as opposed to a rule-bound morality. And let me read you this passage. Again, it's a, 
It has to do with lay people. Uh, the Buddha says there are not only 100 or 500, but far more men and women lay followers, clothed in white, in other words, not in robes, enjoying sensual pleasures, in other words, they are married, they have relationships, they enjoy the world, who carry out my instruction, respond to my advice, have gone beyond doubt, again we saw that already, become free from perplexity about the khandhas, about, about the bundles, about the four, gained intrepidity, have, have, have found a certain courage within themselves, and become independent of others in my teaching. Aparapachaya. In other words, your practice is no longer something that is constantly referring back to some authority figure or some text in order to give justification or legitimation to what you do. But you've somehow become autonomous uh, in your own practice. In other words, you are your own guide at this point. So that is a sketch um, of stream entry. Um, again, obviously we could go on in quite some more detail about this, but I feel it, in a sense, at least opens up um, a, a way of understanding um, the kind of process that the Buddha seems to have envisioned. And I think it's particularly striking, actually, that in the stream entry discourses, it's very often directed at lay people. Um, I, my own view is that uh, in the earliest times you had stream entrants and you had arhants. Arhants meaning literally worthy ones. Uh, the once returner and non-returner I feel were probably introduced at a later date. In other words, the practice begins with entering this stream and the, you know, one aspires towards you know, the fully knowing of dukkha, the letting go of craving, the stopping of craving the engaging with this path that will perhaps more and more approximate to the ideal of, of the worthy one, the Buddha. But in practice, I think what matters is our uh, practice of the Eightfold Path. That's really what it's all about. And the rest, what follows from that, is in a sense academic. It's about putting these instructions into practice, not feeling that you're failed if you haven't reached a certain goal. In other words, the path itself, as we sometimes hear, is in fact the goal. That's actually what it is that um, uh, is both the, the path and the fruit of the practice. So I'll stop there. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.